0: Hello again, everyone. Um, I know the kids are still kind of getting settled. We kind of hear a few of them, um, and you're greeting one another, which is great. Um, but I have the privilege of introducing our speaker for today. As you know, if you were here last week, Pastor Ben uh, kicked us off on our new series um, called "Just Us," and the tagline is: "Is it justice? Is it if it's only just us?" And um, we're going to be continuing on that series with uh, another speaker today. So um, today our speaker is Lori Adams Brown, and she is, There's a, she's amazing. She has a lot of things that I get to introduce and announce, but she is a business program manager, a podcast host, and international speaker, and she's the host of um, the top 10% global podcast, A World of Difference, which celebrates humanity's unique differences and encourages us all to make a difference around the world together. Not only that, she grew up as a missionary kid in Costa Rica and Venezuela. She spent 20 years herself as a, as a missionary with the International Mission Board in Indonesia and Singapore. She previously served as an associate pastor down in Sunnyvale and is currently the development director at Echo Compassion. She has learned how to speak six different languages. Yeah, I know. Uh, holds a master's in intercultural studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. And when she's not all busy doing all that cool stuff, uh, she simply enjoys sipping a flat white coffee with a good book and going to the beach with her husband, Jason, and her three teens, Nico, Alex, and Bella. So, would you all help me welcome her up here and give her a warm round of applause?
1: it on. There we are. Hi, everyone. It's so great to be with you. What a warm ambiance. I've already felt so far being here today, and I just really appreciate you and your current series um, on social justice. It's really remarkable to think that we're standing here in Oakland talking about social justice, isn't it? This is a place that around the world is known for the social justice work that has gone on here throughout history. And um, But I will say that I just hope each of you are showing up today after a long weekend and feeling refreshed. (laughs) Maybe you got to go away. Maybe you got to do something fun with your family. My husband and I and our three teens were Marvel people. I don't know if any of you guys have seen the much anticipated (laughs) sequel to Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. But we um, took our three teens to the cinema, did the whole 3D thing. It was incredible if you haven't seen it. I, for a hot second, almost redid my entire sermon based on it. It was that good. (laughs) But don't worry. I stuck with the plan, so we're good. But also, I want to say, I'm really actually very upset now that I've watched that movie because Halloween was only a couple of weeks ago, and I really want to dress up like Queen Ramonda. Anybody else? She's amazing. And when I look at her in the story of, like, both movies, just the strength, the courage, the wisdom, under great adversity and suffering... Okay, I won't spoil the movie for you. In case you haven't seen it, (laughs) it's so good. Highly recommend. But today we're going to talk about some other incredible women and some issues that might face women in the social justice realm. Um, The title of today's sermon is Let Justice Roll Down. How to bring healing to each other and our land with the quenching waters of making wrongs right. The renowned Cuban-American Mujarista theologian, Ada Maria Isasi Diaz once wrote, Justice is a Christian requirement. One cannot call oneself a Christian and not struggle for justice. I believe Amos would agree that a relationship with God whose heart bends towards justice means walking hand in hand with God in a way that lets God open our eyes and point out the invisible systems of injustice that we have previously ignored. We may have once been blind, but now we see because God helps us to see. And then God calls us to be agents of flourishing, human flourishing, fostering human flourishing wherever we go. I want you just to imagine for a second what you think about in your own mind, in your own body, when you hear the word justice. What comes to mind? What images come to mind? Maybe you think about Dr. King. Maybe you imagine Black Lives Matter protests or Stop AAPI hate campaigns. Or maybe you imagine people who are working to end infanticide for girls in places like India. Your theme reminds us that justice is more than just thinking about ourselves, isn't it? It's about not just our own perspectives. And I think Amos would agree because it's a theme of the book of Amos that justice is about a communal relationship with God as opposed to an individual one. In Western evangelicalism, however, our emphasis has often been more on the personal relationship with God, and that has often skewed us away from the work of kingdom justice, where human flourishing is the result of us changing systems that oppress or marginalize others. As she mentioned in the introduction, my husband and I spent 20 years in Southeast Asia as missionaries. Um, he lived there a little longer because he grew up in Bangkok and, and had lived in India for a while as a child. But um, in the year 2005, when we were living in Indonesia, I had a chance to go to Mindanao, Philippines with our team of mostly Indonesians and learn from Filipinos who were experts and um, educated and had a lot of experience in this rural development model that they trained us on for community development. The men and the women who taught me and my Indonesian teammates the principles that I carry with me to this day were that you center the people in the conversation that are most likely affected by the problem. So if you go into a community, instead of just asking one or two people, or coming in as outsiders, and occasion white saviors, <laughs> use that as an example, um, we often don't understand what is going on in a situation. And so our Filipino Instructors taught us that we want to go in and ask the entire village to speak into what's happening and make sure we include as many voices as we can. And when we center and listen to these voices, then we therefore learn, not only exactly how to pinpoint that actual problem, but we also learn that there's probably some resources available that they know about that we don't know about that can help solve the problem. And instead of going in and misdiagnosing the problem and providing resources that don't match it, We just come alongside and we can help and say, what is it we can offer to cheer you on and to walk alongside you and maybe fill in some of those gaps that don't exist for you? And that is um, not only something that I carry with me to this day in life, but it also taught me a few practical things. (laughs) It taught me some things like about local herbs they use in the Philippines that could help with certain illnesses um, and how the local women combining those local herbs with Western medicine was bringing healing and flourishing to entire villages in southern Philippines. So let's center Amos' voice here today as we look at what he was expressing as he observed situations going on as one of the shepherds of Tekoa and why he's called to preach a really harsh message in a peaceful time where upper class men and women are consuming resources with insensitivity toward the suffering of humans near them. We're going to look at Amos chapter 5, if you want to look it up, verses 18 to 24. It starts with the word doom. <laughs> not a great not a great word, not a happy word, but if you'll bear with us today as we learn to feel the feelings that this passage is showing us, I want you to give your mind and your soul and your body space to be open to some of the hard things Amos is trying to tell people in his day and what we might learn today in twenty twenty two here in Oakland and Christian Lehman's Church. So Amos five eighteen to twenty four. Doom to those who desire the day of the Lord. Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear. Or sought refuge in a house, rested a hand against the wall, and was bitten by a snake. Isn't the day of the Lord darkness, not light? All dark, with no brightness in it. I hate darkness. I reject your festivals. I don't enjoy your joyous assemblies. If you bring me your entirely burned offerings and gifts of food, I won't be pleased. I won't even look at your offerings of well-fed animals. Take away the noise of your songs. I won't listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Many people doing social justice around the United States hear this later last verse I just read, verse 24, and don't realize it's a verse from the Bible. So much of our social justice work has been rooted in this actual very verse. I'm going to read it one more time. It's the famous one. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Is it just me, (laughs) or does God seem a bit angry? (laughs) at those who claim to be in relationship with God, but aren't reflecting God's heart for the oppressed at all. How is God so angry at their oppression that God won't even look at their offerings and ask them to take away the noise of their worship songs? Is it possible that our own offerings and songs are causing God to feel this same way toward us? when we are perpetuating unjust systems with our own apathy toward the oppressed. The subheading in my CEV translation uses the words divine disgust. What in the world does that even mean? Does God have disgust or disdain for us when we overlook the oppressed? If so, God, you've got my attention. (laughs) I certainly don't want to be on the wrong side of this. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I'm all ears. It seems that being content to enjoy resources and power while ignoring the lack of resources and power of others is contributing to God's disdain. And as we look around us here today, 2022, in Oakland, California, and accept Amos' call to let justice roll down like a river that cleanses the dirt and quenches the land that thirsts for wrongs to be made right— Today, we're going to focus on social injustices that women face. It's no small task to look at half the world, half the church, and look at what systems might oppress them, and how the lack of systemic resources is perpetuated both by us intentionally and both unintentionally. So as we look at this, we want to recognize there's no way we're covering all that today, so don't worry, but we're going to just take a little taste to get a glimpse into what might happen and what how we might be involved. So let's take it step by step together here, shall we? That's it's a lot to unpack. But as our AA friends have told us, the first of the 12 steps is to just admit the problem. Don't worry, we don't have 12 steps today. We only have three, and they all start with the letter R. I made it easy for you. You're welcome. <laughs> the first step is just to recognize. So we're going to take a step and recognize what is going on in our world. And this can be one of the hardest ones. We have been swimming in the ocean of patriarchy our whole lives. And we are used to seeing the highest seats of power with predominantly male bodies in them sitting on these thrones most of our lives. We have been, we have bought into the gender stereotypes that tell us that work at home is really just for women. And it's normal for that to be unpaid. We've gotten used to the pay gap. Um, we've even come up with sexist excuses as to why it's okay that it exists. However, if God has discussed, for those of us who claim to follow God's ways, when we don't recognize the wrongs in our communities and make them right, then we must seek God's heart more deeply. If we have been elitist and ignored the ways we've been greedy or selfish, either in sins of commission or sins of omission, by intentionally harming or or ignoring the suffering of others, then we have a lot of work to do on our own selves first. In reading Amos, though, it seems as though God is more interested in social justice than in our religious ceremonies. And that's a hard pill to swallow. That may need a moment, actually, to even sink into our bodies and our minds. That mindset shift doesn't come easily, but it does remind me of the church I grew up in in Venezuela, a small church about... This size at times smaller, bigger at different times. It's a church um, where I was baptized. My Sunday school class was in the back. It was a one-room church, and I sat under the mango tree for my Sunday school class. And I sat next to Daisy. She died when we were twelve of malnutrition. Her she was the oldest of twelve. Her parents adored her. She was a sight and a beauty and a smart girl and knew all the answers in Sunday school. She loved Jesus. But her parents were in and out of employment and poverty. And now that church makes a pot of soup every Sunday. And they started doing it in the Chavez years. when the supermarket lines got too long for people to stand in, especially the older people in the community, the widows. They feed everyone from the neighborhood who will come. And even though many of them suffer from food scarcity themselves, they always somehow manage to pull it off. Young and older welcome. Religious ritual, though, can often be something that incorporates justice into our whole community that suffers. And it becomes this beautiful aroma where a whole neighborhood can taste and see that the Lord is good. And it satisfies that hunger and it quenches that thirst of a land that is longing for justice. Let justice roll down like a river. A river that quenches a parched land and cleanses a dirty land longing for justice. Indigenous theologians have really helped me see a greater connection between us and the land. And spiritually, how justice and healing are intrinsically interconnected between us and God, and between us and our fellow human beings and image bearers, and between us and the land. And all of creation, we know in scripture, longs for justice and for wrongs to be made right. Edlini Tola Medina, whose Quechua indigenous name is Erlini Chove, once said, Diversity in the community brings balance and generates conditions for life and harmony with justice, the kingdom of God. And it is never reduced to one single way of thinking. We must listen to the voices that have been silenced. As we look at the cultural context of Amos, I know that you guys have been studying it um, for this series. It was written as a message to the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of king jeroboam and so what was going on at the time was it was a time of peace and prosperity but only for some some of god's people were experiencing this but others were exploiting the poor and defenseless notably widows and orphans and we all know how god feels about caring for widows and orphans don't we widows are mentioned 81 times throughout scripture famous widows such as Tamar and Ruth and Naomi and Bathsheba, Anna, later Jesus' own mother, Mary, and of course the widow that Jesus highlighted when she came and gave her might all she had as an example of how we should be. The fact that we know their names means those stories are to tell us something deep, and it was very countercultural for that to even be written down. So why widows? Why do we even talk about that? Well, in the scriptures that we're reading from, and especially in the time of Amos, women were property. Widows had no voice when their husbands had died, and they had no financial backing, and they were often exploited. Throughout scripture, we see that God will care for and defend the widows. And there are also commands from God for us to care for the widows. God will punish those who cause harm to widows... And in the Old Testament, God commanded Israelites to give a portion every third year tithe to the widows, as well as a portion of the free will offerings at the Feast of Weeks and Tabernacle. And also, part of each harvest was to be left in the field just for them. So what is the larger picture of God's heart for justice for half the world, half the church? I think it's important to recognize that we were trained from young ages to prefer men's voices. So, reading books by women, listening to podcasts by women, voting for women in the highest positions, and listening to women preach is often, it feels like, second rate. Um, Due to the oxygen that we breathe in our cultures that tell us that men are best, closest to God, and other false narratives that the world feeds us. When we listen to women, though, we realize that sexism is actually more than just catcalling on the street, although it is certainly that. But it could also be a boss unconsciously assuming a young woman would prefer to have a baby as opposed to taking an overseas assignment. It can be that gut feeling that something is just off about a woman in power. Maybe it's her voice or her hair. Dr. Grace Ji-Soon Kim says in her book, Invisible, When a woman develops in a culture where discrimination, diminishment, and dismissal are normalized, It takes a long time to confidently express one's vocality and visibility. Creating systems and spaces where women feel safe to speak, where they are listened to, taken seriously, and believed is key. We need to take a long, hard look inside ourselves, as both men and women, about how we are complicit in systems that oppress women. Yes, women can be a part of oppressing women, too. And trust me, I have as much work to do here as anyone. What is going wrong with these systems that oppress women, suppress them, overlook them, and undervalue and diminish them? I think that three things are going on. One is we have a lot of internalized misogyny, myself included. Um, It's really the ocean we swim in, patriarchy, and that hurts both women and men. I confess that for years I preferred men's voices, too. And I read mostly exclusively male theologians and even white male theologians at that. I bought into this worldly lie that women's Bible study books weren't as serious or theologically deep as the men's were. I thought chick flicks were less than. And I just really floated in that ocean, letting the waves take me where they wanted. And then one day I recognized my sin and I repented of it and I pushed my body to swim against the tide of that ocean in true repentance that led to change. I still have blind spots. I still get tired of swimming against that tide. I don't get it right often, and I'm a work in progress, too. But at least now, I'm facing in the right direction and swimming instead of floating. I think another thing that can happen is our insensitivity in the face of human suffering. And that is ultimately a betrayal of our relationship with God, who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love as we read about in psalm 145 verses 8 and 9 often we just lack intentionality it's just easier to just float and go with the flow humans are really prone to greed and selfishness and pride and abuse of power therefore justice work is really hard work because it's what we do in our own hearts and our minds and our souls and our bodies but also in our communities at large we look at our world, and we see many social justice issues that affect, affect women and break God's heart for those who bear God's own image. It can be overwhelming, I'm not going to lie. It's important, though, not to stick our heads in the sand and refuse to hear or just throw our hands up in the air and say, The world is too broken. There's really nothing we can do and just give up. We are God's children. We have the spirit of the living God living in us, empowering us, emboldening us to do God's kingdom work, shoulder to shoulder, as men and women in the global church. We want to bear witness and bring the kinds of system changes to stop the injustices from happening upstream instead of just continually caring for the wounded downstream by injustice. We want to address the source of the problem as Jesus' followers. So let's take a deep look at the state of our world for women who face social injustices of many kinds before we move on to the next step. Femicide is generally defined as the murder of women by men because they're women. Of all femicide cases in the high-income world, I want you to imagine what number you think the United States might carry percentage-wise and then see if you're shocked when I tell you the percentage. 70%. Of femicide cases in the high income world are committed in these United States of America. And yet a Pew Research Center survey recently found that more than half of American men think sexism is over. One in four women, which is twenty-four point three percent aged 18 and older in the United States, have been victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner in their lifetime. One in four. Which means in this congregation, we probably have people who've experienced that and deserve much care, and they deserve our um, listening ears. 83 cents. Keep that number in your head. That's how much women in the U.S. are paid for every dollar paid to non-Hispanic white men. Equal payday marks the day in the year on which it takes women, on average, to earn what men did in the previous year. That day is March 15th, so basically that's 15 months. Or if you look at a typical nine to five work day, women essentially start working for free around 2.40 p.m. every day. In the U.S., the wage gap varies by other factors though. For example, compared to every dollar white non-Hispanic men earn, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander women earn 75 cents for every dollar that a, a man would earn. Black women earn 64 cents. Native and indigenous women, 51 cents. Latino women, 54 cents. And when it comes to mom's equal payday, across race and ethnicity, they experience a wage gap of approximately 58 cents compared to dads. Even though... Multiple studies from Bangladesh, the Philippines, and the U.S. have shown that the money moms earn is more likely to benefit their families than the money that dads earn. And yet we still pay moms less, often assuming the opposite is true. Child marriage is still legal in many U.S. states, and globally, 750 million women and girls alive today were married before their 18th birthday. Public spaces, such as trains, sidewalks, even school bathrooms, are often unsafe for women and girls. One in four girls, one in four, say they never feel comfortable using school bathrooms, according to a survey of youth um, conducted across four regions of the world. The extent and forms of school-related violence that girls and boys experience differs, for sure, but evidence suggests that girls are at greater risk of sexual violence, harassment, and exploitation. We ask, why? Why are God's daughters exploited, harassed, abused, and oppressed so systemically? Why is God not stopping it? Free will feels really good when we are free to choose. I like it. (laughs) But it can make us question God when ones who abuse are free to choose as well. And we also recognize that we've done wrong. I have. Either intentionally or unintentionally, we've been complicit, silent in the face of oppression, and that leads us to step two. After we recognize the wrongs, we must turn from our part in contributing to the social injustices, and we must do this in our own hearts, minds, souls, and bodies, and as communities. But repentance is our second R, and that is about a new way of being. We understand from Scripture that repentance is a turning to walk in a new and right way alongside God, who is just and on the side of the oppressed, always. There is no condemnation here for any of us. There is a call to change our hearts and lives. And there is a call to follow Jesus, who centered women with his interactions with women. Dr. Beth Allison Barr says in her book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, in a world that didn't accept the word of a woman as a valid witness, Jesus chose women? As witnesses to his resurrection. In a world that gave husbands power over the very lives of their wives, Paul told husbands to do the opposite, to give up their lives for their wives. In a world that saw women as biologically deformed men, monstrous even, Paul declared that men were just like women in Christ. If Amos emphasizes a communal relationship with God as opposed to an individual one, why do we still center the voices of males accused of abuse instead of centering the voices of women who are abused? And why is the church no better and often worse than the world when it comes to listening to and believing women, image bearers of God? An LAPD study found that 4.5% of sexual assault cases were actually false reports. These results are consistent with over well many um, well constructed international studies. Um, it r- really ranges a little bit, but 4.5% is kind of right right there. As with any crime, false reporting of sexual assault does occur. However, it is very rare, and it is often the result of a lack of evidence to prove it. This means that statistically speaking, we should believe abuse survivors. We just should because statistically they're more likely to be telling the truth by far humans are prone to greed though we're prone to selfishness and pride and abuse of power and that's why justice work is hard work that we do in our own hearts and minds and souls and bodies and our communities at large together as we sharpen each other as we grow in christ likeness and our third r is restore i know our bodies just relaxed a little <laughs> that was heavy it's hard to take a look at it. But we do want to be a part of the restoration, and that work doesn't happen step one. We have to do the other steps before we can get to it. So how do we make wrongs right? How do we roll down the justice? God teaches us in Micah 6 8 to love good and hate evil. So I want you to imagine for a second an evil, just any evil. It doesn't even have to be related to women. And just picture that. What is it like? How does it feel in your body, at the thought of it, in your soul? And then I want you to imagine a river of justice rolling down steadily to quench the thirst, to cleanse this dirt, and bring a glistening back. We drove by Lake Merritt this morning, and the sun's shining, and it glistens on the water. And wouldn't it be so beautiful to see justice roll down like that? to see dirty things cleansed and to see wrongs made right and to see that ever-flowing stream of water bring back the restoration that we all long for in our lives and in our communities. Women are to be included. They just are. Image bearers of God are to be included. Women reflect God's own image Humanity's tendency to abuse power coupled with the fall's resulting sin of patriarchy has meant God constantly reminding us as humanity to care for the oppressed and to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So for a call to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, that means what was it like between men and women before the fall? Well, we know that both man and woman were created in God's own image. And we're equal and vulnerably naked and unashamed. And so if we're to pray for those prayers to happen now, for us to experience that kind of human flourishing together, we have much work to do to be the answers to our own prayers that Jesus himself taught us to pray. I think about sometimes my experience in Indonesia, and I get asked a lot, what was it like to live under Islamic law and wear hijab? And... It was all the things you could imagine. (laughs) It was hard. It wasn't my own conviction. I did it because I wanted to be respectful of the culture around me, and I didn't want to be the only woman with hair, because we know what they thought of those women. (laughs) And I didn't want to be somebody that would be presenting God's love and message of hope to people and then look like somebody who was, you know, a woman of a bad reputation. But at the same time, it meant that my own body had to experience a lot of the things that the women there did. It wasn't always easy walking through markets. It wasn't always easy riding on public transportation. There were things that I experienced that I had to go to therapy for. But it wasn't the only place I experienced patriarchy. (laughs) I've experienced it in churches. I've experienced it in all cultures. Um, And I know that that's not God's heart. And I think in our core being, we know that too. And I think about my friend, Chusiri, And she was at the second-best university in Indonesia when I met her in language school studying to be a dentist. Arranged to be married to her cousin, as Atenese people often did to keep the bloodlines from the Arab descendants who brought Islam. She didn't want to marry him, but she did like another guy in the university. And they secretly started dating, hid it from the Achenese dorm kids, but he began to be physically abusive. And it was hard. It was so hard, because she was my best friend, and I didn't know how to help her. I had enough language to understand what was going on, but I didn't know how the systems were going to work. And I had read the week before in the Jakarta Post that they had had a new system in the Indonesian police force to help women who were physically assaulted, but it was brand new. And so I thought, well, maybe there's some hope. (laughs) But as we all know, even here in the United States, some of those systems are still very broken. Um, You can be a cop and beat your wife and the cops will show up and high-five you and never really listen to your wife's side of the story. And so we know that the systems are broken, but it was broken not just for the world in that moment, it was broken for my friend, for Chutsiri. And because of the secrecy of their relationship, it was so much easier to hide. I went to my friend who was studying on a master's program, also an Achinese devout Muslim, and he was studying an American studies program and had done a paper on domestic violence in America and how horrible and awful we are. Which is <laughs> just not untrue. Um, but I thought, well, maybe he'll be someone who can help. And so I told him, hey, Tutsiri's boyfriend is beating her and I need to figure out a way to get, that, get her safe. And he just threw his arms up in the air and said, there's nothing we can do. It's too broken. And I thought, no, there has to be another way. But the truth was there were no systems for her. Her religious community, her community of her people group, being in this major university. And there was the the next articles coming out of the Jakarta Post was that people in the police station were laughing at the new program, that it was just a ridiculous program that was never going to work. And it did feel like the world was so broken that there was nothing we could do. He did threaten um, suicide, which often happens when she tried to leave him. And I kept telling her, you know, you need to get safe. It's about you and not him. But if you've ever tried to help someone leave a situation like that, it's complicated. And I understand. And there's no blame on her because there's a lot of emotion tied into all of those relationships. Um, and the gaslighting can be very powerful. But she was in a world that didn't center her voice and probably never would in any good scenario. And my heart still breaks for her. She did end up over the years leaving that relationship and is married and has another family has a family now and is not in connection with him anymore. But those years were really, really hard and we weren't sure which way it was gonna go. And so I want us to have a practical step today. There's a many things we could do, but there's one step that I can think of that would be really helpful if you would consider it and help to solve or at least begin to solve some of the issues that this touches on in multiple areas. I'm on the board of Justice Revival and one of our initiatives is to help pass the ERA for women in the United States. Um, and we have a faith for ERA campaign and we're hoping to get Christians involved in helping us have equal rights for women. Um, it's been about 50 years since the amendment was written. And it's still not been able to be passed. Um, When the U.S. Constitution was written, Abigail Adams famously said to John Adams, her husband, remember the ladies, and apparently he didn't, and none of the men did. And so equal rights for women is still not enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. But we, as people of faith, Jesus followers, people who know that God's heart bends towards justice and calls us to care for image bearers, this is an opportunity to take some action if you're willing to consider it. So if you want to read more about it, or I'll be around after if you have questions, justicerevival.org slash give is a place you can go to to learn more about the Faith for ERA campaign. You and I can make history and help to back the Equal Rights Amendment because the ERA is ultimately about women's rights uh, being fully protected when it comes to their own children, when it comes to equal pay for equal work, when it comes to all types of Issues that have faced women, even in 2022 in the United States. I want to close with a quote from the womanist theologian, Dolores Williams. She is a woman who's written a book, Sisters in the Wilderness. And if you're not familiar with um, womanist theologians, they are black women theologians. And they've helped me understand a great deal about the wilderness experiences we have. About... The story of Hagar in particular and just what it was like for all the generations, especially ones who are African American and walking through the and being enslaved people on forced labor camps and the generations that passed down stories of faith and what it meant to walk through great amounts of suffering and cling to God and know that God sees just like God saw Hagar and she was um, able to name God a woman who had been assaulted kicked out um had a woman be complicit in the whole thing <laughs> and um and left in the desert to not make it but god saw her and she named god and as theologians have really opened my eyes to this story in a in a particular way um Dolores williams has written this book sisters in the wilderness and um hang on for a second because i just lost the quote Okay, well, maybe we're not supposed to read that. Oh, here it is, here it is. Faith, (laughs) technology doesn't always work here in the Bay Area, does it? Um, Faith has taught me to see the miraculous in everyday life. The miracle of ordinary black women resisting and rising above evil forces in society. Where forces work to destroy and subvert the creative power and energy. My mother and my grandmother taught me that God gave to black women. And I think it's important for us to recognize our role in community. The ones who are older, the ones who are younger, the stories, the narratives we tell, the the narratives we listen to. Are we listening to women? Are we passing on the stories of the grandmothers and the mothers and the lessons that they've learned through adversity? Because there's a strength in women. And as image bearers of God, of course there is. Of course, there's a side of God that we get to see when we don't sideline half the church and half the world, but when we include women. So my blessing for you today, as we close, is may you open doors for women. May you change systems for women. And work for the flourishing of women here at Christian Lehman's Church in Oakland, in California, and throughout our beautiful world. May you see justice flow down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Amen.